Amen. If you're comfortably able, if you'd remain standing to honor God's word, which comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 13. O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak him, speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart of the mind and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them. For, you, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray now in these moments that you would be our teacher that your Holy Spirit would guide and correct and encourage and be the voice that we hear. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, you know that we are in a sermon series on the book of Jeremiah, right in the middle of this series. And last week we ended with the word that Jeremiah had preached a sermon, and at the end of that sermon he took a clay pot and he threw it to the ground and he smashed it. And he told the people that God's coming judgment was like this pot that was shattered, that God is at the end of his patience. It was a powerful, dramatic, pointed sermon. It was, it was harsh, speaking about God's anger, how upset God was. And God had been so patient for so long. The priest of the temple pastor, son of Immer, was, was what we might call the senior pastor of the day. He heard Jeremiah preach that sermon, and in response, the senior pastor whipped Jeremiah, the prophet, put him in the stocks in the upper Benjamin gate of God's temple. I've never had that experience after a sermon. I hope I never have that experience after a sermon. Hard to imagine. Jeremiah is in prison no one is listening to Jeremiah. People, his friends, are laughing at him. He is backed into what seemed like a, a cold, dark stable. We've titled this series, When Things Fall Apart. I think we are at the point in this sermon series where we can safely say, Jeremiah is falling apart. Consider when maybe you've been at a point in life where you're at the end of your rope. Consider a time when you were feeling like everything around you or inside you was falling apart. 
Our passage, the one I read this morning, is one of the most personal and impassioned writings in all of Scripture. No one speaks of the plight of the prophet better than Jeremiah. And he, he, he begins now to speak to God, toward God. He addresses him, Lord, you have enticed me. One translation says duped, another deceived or seduced. You've tricked me, God. You've used me and you've abused me. The prophet is teetering on blasphemy here. You challenged me, God, to an arm wrestling match like I could ever win, and you've overpowered me and you have prevailed. What I love about Jeremiah is that he lays all of his dirty laundry before God, all of his emotion. His exchanges with God are heated, spirited, adversarial, accusatory, and moving. In one verse, he's accusing God. In the next verse, he's praising God. The next, cursing the day he was born. There's no editing. There's no airbrushing with Jeremiah. And what we're left with, what we see, what is modeled before us is the kind of faith that God wants from us. Not a perfect faith, but an honest faith. A free faith. It is an act of faith to take our anger and our frustrations with God and our enemies to God. It's an act of faith. When life falls apart, Jeremiah laments. A lament is a cry of sorrow or grief, but But it also includes our questions and our our, our confusion. Lament is the language of protest. We ask questions like, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did this happen? God, how long will this go on? And lament is such common speech in the Bible. We find it all throughout. It is central to the book of Psalms where 70% of the Psalms may, may be lament. It's, it's, lament is critical to the wisdom literature, including Job. It, Job, it is central in the prophets. Most notably, we see it here in Jeremiah and, and his book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's. Lament was also a theme in Jesus' life. He was born and acquaint, he was a man acquainted with sorrow. It is presented throughout the narrative of Scripture, yet it, it, it's also a form of speech and language that seems to be foreign to us as Christians in our lives. We've we've lost sight of how to speak like this. I'm not sure why to lament, but it's hard to get away from it if you read through the scriptures. And Jeremiah becomes a very wise guide for us because with all of his human emotions, all of it laid bare, he stays connected to God through his speech and through the yearnings of his heart. At the end of the day, Jeremiah's faith knows that God can be trusted and that he both hears and acts. So what is lament's speech? What is this form of communication? I think the first thing we we can say is that lament is a, actually, lament is a form of praise. You know, if you think about it, when life tumbles in, when life falls apart for you or for me, we have... I think we have several options of, of, of response. Um, one is, and this one seems to be really popular these days, one is we could just simply start to complain. Have you noticed anyone complaining lately? 
The online world we live in now seems to be a, a natural haven for those who want to complain. I worry about our younger folks who they, they hear so much complaint and they think that that's normative. And it's actually very toxic to the soul. It, it leads to cynicism. It's complaint and cynicism are so closely related. It's empty. And here's the thing. Have, have you noticed that complaint forcing a lot of change? Have you noticed it doing a lot of good? Has it changed anything? It's not. And it doesn't make us feel any better. When life tumbles in, we can just start complaining about it. That is a, a response that seems very popular. You know, another response we have is we could just start um, gathering up some really nice words or platitudes. Um, we can say, well, everything happens for a reason, right? How is that helpful? <laughs> have you noticed when someone says that to you? That you really? Everything happens for a reason? I don't know, but that doesn't seem to help me at all. Um, how about this one? God won't give you more than you can handle. Hmm. Uh, Jeremiah would beg to differ. <laughs> I think sometimes he does give us more than we can handle. And by the way, when you're really suffering and someone says that, boy, that's not helpful at all. Uh, it'll all work out in the end. Well, what about right now? That doesn't help me. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. And, and sometimes we use Bible verses. We pull Bible verses out and say, let me share with you this one verse. And it it really doesn't help. And in many times, these platitudes or these thoughts, are, they actually do more harm than good. A, a third option when life tumbles in, when it gets really hard, is we can, we can simply internalize and go quiet. We can fail to speak or utter. Boy, there's a lot of people talking right now. There's some new essays being written and books being written now. People are trying to figure out why is there so much rage in our society, particularly with young men, young boys. And there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of them is, what if you have no one that you can express your feelings to? What if there's no one who is listening to the cries that need to be uttered, that need to be shared when life gets really hard, then we internalize and it starts to corrode and we get really, really angry. And it's a popular response. We retreat. But we don't see Jeremiah choosing any of these options. He doesn't, he doesn't complain. He, he, he's not into cynicism. He's certainly not quiet. He's certainly not giving easy answers or one-liners. He takes all of this and he starts talking to God. He takes his emotions. He, he, he directs them to God. And in a way, in so doing, he is affirming God's role. Old Testament scholars estimate that two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. This is what the psalmist would do. Lord, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Why? Now, the word lament and complaint, those words are sometimes interchangeable. And we see both in Scripture. Complaint and lament occur in different contexts, um, depending on what's happening. In the wilderness, the Israels, 
the Hebrews complained to God because they didn't have enough food, that lack of bread and meat and water. So they just complained. Remember the rabble? They, there was a lot of complaint. They assumed the worst about God. Complaint assumes the worst about God. He wants to kill us, they said. The people had been dramatically rescued from Egypt, saved through the Red Sea, um, but they turned on that God, painted, painted him as the villain. Their complaints were actually a way of putting God on trial. They were testing God. But when we read the Psalms and when we read Jeremiah, we read something a little bit different. They are protesting, directing their complaints to God because of his love. Because they know his character. And they're saying, Lord, we know how righteous and good you are. We know and we see and we see. Now, why is this happening? Why is this going on? Tell us why. We can say that a complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his character, but a lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. Remember the word we heard in this series already, hesed, to describe God. Hesed, his loving kindness, his patience, his steadfast love. When I take my inner churnings and my, Lord, why is this happening to God? In a way, it's a form of praise. It's acknowledging his goodness. He's the one. He's the only one that I can take this to. It's a form of praise. But lament is also a proof of relationship. Jeremiah brought his lament to God on the basis of his covenant. His prayers were not vain attempts to convince a distant deity to notice him. See, his prayers were not like the priests of Baal who were dancing and who were cutting themselves to conjure a response. These were people whom Yahweh, the God of uh, of Israel, the sole sovereign creator, he had called them, you're my people, my firstborn. And so Jeremiah was asking his father to act accordingly. And one of the things I've learned is when you're young and your kids are young and they, they ask you for help all the time. You don't really notice because they're so dependent. They're always asking you for help. Um, I need this. Dad, I need this. Mom, I need this. I need this. Do this. Do this. I mean, it's everywhere. And you never really stop and appreciate it. But when your kids get to be my age, in their 20s, late teens and 20s, when they now come and say, Dad, I need your help. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but when they do come, I have to tell you, that feels really good. It's quite remarkable. No one tells you this when you're young, (laughs) but now it feels like there's this great acknowledgement, and I always appreciate it. You know, the reverse of this is tragically described by Dr. Russell Moore in his book, adopted for life. He describes going to an orphanage in Russia, he and his wife, as they were in the process of pursuing adoption. One of the things they noticed in that long room with cribs and babies, he said, immediately they noticed something, the silence. And they said it was eerie. The babies in those cribs never cried. Not because they never needed anything, 
but because they had learned that no one cared enough to come or to answer. Children who are confident of the love of a caregiver cry. For the Christian, for us believers, our lament when taken to our Father in heaven is proof of our relationship with God, our connection to the great caregiver. It's our crying out. When we go to the God with our cries and our tears and our, even our anger, it's proof that we are connected to Him. We're saying, Lord, I need you. I need you right away. I need you now. Lament is a proof of relationship. It is also to participate in the suffering of others. Jeremiah, you know, has pretty much had it with his stubborn congregation, his listeners. I mean, we see evidence of that. He's had it. He's preached sermons now. He has warned them. He's given them all kinds of metaphors, analogies. He has been speaking, speaking, speaking. No one is listening, and he has had it. His people, um, we see that over and over again. And they, in turn, reject him. But at the end of the day, they are still his people. Deep down, he wants them to turn back. He's caught between them and God, and he weeps about it. In chapter 9, we read this. Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. When I pray for a friend, a dear friend who is suffering with cancer, I stand between them and God and I plead and I say, Lord, do you not see what's happening here? We need you to act. I need you to act. This is my dear friend here. Please. And in a way, that prayer not only connects me to God, but also connects me to my friend. I I share in their suffering. When 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 I pray and I say, Lord, I'm so sick and tired of what's happening at the border. I'm tired of seeing these images and people suffering. Lord, I'm I'm tired of it. Please do something. In a way, it, it, it connects me to their plight. It teaches me to be more sensitive to what's going on in the human suffering. Lament is not only for the suffering, it's for the solidarity with the suffering. We, we love our neighbor when we allow their experience of pain to become the substance of our prayer. This is, after all, what Jesus did for us. The strange act of Jesus, you remember on the cross saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a strange thing to say. Theologians have analyzed this over and over and over again. What we sometimes miss is that Jesus was actually praying the words of Psalm 22. Precisely because that was the prayer of many Jewish martyrs in the first century. Jesus, dying dying of this shameful death on the cross, prayed in solidarity with the suffering. It was an act of solidarity. Every prayer of lament is another way we say, another offer of amen. Finally, lament is a prayer for God to act. Lament in the Bible is not simply an outlet for our frustrations, and it wasn't simply a place for Jeremiah to vent or for us. Though venting might have might be beneficial, there is some value in it, in and of itself. But lament at the end of the day is a form of prayer. And prayer is not passive. 
Many of the laments in the Bible are, are calls to action. They plead with God. God, pay attention. God, notice. God, see. God, do something. George Buttrick, the former chaplain at Harvard University, wrote a book on suffering. And in it, he makes an interesting point. He says, suffering itself is an event. Therefore, a person who is suffering is not comforted by someone who gives them a theory about why they are suffering. It's really important. I've learned this. When I go and visit in the hospital, like I did at the end of this week, when I see someone, um, it it doesn't do me any good to say, well, let me talk about why you're in this condition. Um, let, me, let me explain the situation you've gotten yourself into. That does absolutely no good. Let me sum this up in a few words or give you this happy promise. Again, these things do not help. This is a great temptation to do this, uh, to bring euphoric fe- feelings into a suffering situation. Now, it may be okay for someone suffering to, to utter these and to say, this is why I'm in this situation. That's fine. But it's not our job to interpret why people are suffering. It's our job to come alongside them. Buttrick said, people suffering do not need a theory or a feeling. They need an event to occur. They need something to happen. See, when you read through the Bible, you see a lot of suffering. We also see God who did something. We see a God who acted. What Jeremiah couldn't see, but what we can see, is that God did act. God is acting right now, and God has promised to come again and act in the future. This is not a passive God who just hears our pleas. This is not an aloof God that just says, fine, go ahead and vent, I don't really care. This is a God through human history who has done something, who has acted. Jesus arrived. It was an event. He came in a stable. This, This God that Jeremiah calls out to is the one who actually does come and acts. He calms storms. He washed feet. He suffered on the cross. He was crucified, dead, and buried for us and for our salvation. Laments do not go into emptiness. They go to a God who has proven that he can and will act and do something about it. When we lament, we are yearning for God. We're saying, God, you've acted in the past. You're doing things now. We need you to act again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. The early church had a word that they would pray, a one-word prayer. Maranatha. It just means come quickly. That was their prayer. When I look at what's happening in our country, I say, Maranatha. (laughs) Lord, come quickly. You've come in the past. Could you come fix things, please? And by the way, do it soon. Soon. Come quickly, Lord. In the last book, the last battle of the Narnia series, There is a great battle for Narnia. And as you can imagine, in a great battle and war, there's a lot of suffering. We see the kings and queens and faithful servants of Narnia pressed to the wall against foreign invaders. It felt like things were falling apart because there was these Narnian traitors, those loyal to the last king of Narnia, Tyrion. They are now forced. They're retreating. Looks like all is lost into a small stable at the top of the hill. 
Tyrion looked around again and could hardly believe his eyes. There in that stable, he, what he saw was blue sky overhead. And grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. And his new friends all around him were all laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. The view from inside that cramped stable was vast fields, sunlight, glory, laughing. Outside the stable, what you saw is war and suffering and hardship. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. We need that stable perspective. Things may be falling apart. Maybe. The walls may be collapsing in. There may be hardship. There may be seasons of really, really hard. But the perspective from inside that stable is that all is well. And there's laughter. As believers and followers of Jesus, we get that perspective. We see it. It becomes ours. The world seen from inside that stable where Jesus was born. That view is bigger and more glorious and more wonderful than we can imagine. And so we pray. We cry out to God, Lord, we want that scene again. We want to see it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And so we join Jeremiah in praying prayers of lament. Lord, could you come soon? Lord, why is this happening? Lord, I don't like this. Lord, Lord, on and on and on. And slowly and surely, he's going to show us that perspective of what he's doing, how he's acted, how he's acting, how he promises to act again. And so we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Let us pray. Lord, we read these words of Jeremiah and they're so honest and brutal at times and yet they're so filled with confidence in who you are. May we have that same voice and that same vision. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, do something that we don't do here very often at Mountain View. Um, let me ask a question. How, uh, where do you go at home to have important conversations about the house. Where do the main conversations happen? They happen in the kitchen, that's right, right? Everyone stands, can we join, come into our kitchen for Mountain Viewers for a second? Uh, if you are visiting today, um, I'm going to give you permission to daydream for a moment, all right? Just check out. <laughs> but if you're a part of our church family, I want to talk to you about something just for a few brief moments. Um, we have been worshiping in this sanctuary for 40 years as a congregation. 40 years. That's a great biblical number. <laughs> 40 years is often in the Bible a time when God is forming people and shaping them into a community of faith. And as I look and as I see back in the last 40 years, God has done that, has he not? He has formed this congregation. He has shaped us. He has given us so much over the past 40 years. We hope and pray now at this point, we would like to ensure and help 
and respond to enhance our campus so that the next 40 years will be every bit as glorious as the last 40 years. We think this is an important time to do that. Our elders have come up with a vision to how to enhance our campus. And we're going to start right here in our sanctuary. We're calling this a Grow in Grace campaign. It's the words we often hear at the end of our service, and we want to be a people who are growing in grace. We want that to be today and 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We want to continue to the great heritage that we have here. What we're proposing is a number of changes to the sanctuary. It's, it hasn't, not a whole lot has been done to the sanctuary uh, over the years. You notice there's some challenges in our sanctuary that we've noticed. There are blinking lights, like this one right here. Have you noticed that? Do you know we've tried so hard to fix that? We can't. <laughs> and next Sunday, it'll be there, and then it'll be there. It moves around. Very mysterious. We don't know why. Today, up on our um, chancel, you'll see it. I have to, I'm on the step because it's really crowded up here. There's many Sundays when we do not have the musicians that we'd like to have to help us in our worship because we just do not have space up here. We hired an architect, and he looked at our church, and he said, I've been in a thousand churches. I've never seen a chancel this small. I don't know what that says about us, but we have a small chancel. Um, our sound system in here is, is starting to fail. This morning, you might not hear it, but our choir hears it. They can't hear our organ. <laughs> There's a problem with it, and there are dead spots. What we're proposing is that in our sanctuary, we do some renovation and some upkeep. We're going to change our lighting and our sound system. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to enhance this chancel area so that we can do more uh, in terms of worship. Um, the sound quality will be greatly enhanced in lighting for those who are worshiping online. It'll be a huge upgrade. Um, so that'll happen in here. And all the while, we're going to keep a traditional feel. We want this to look and feel like a traditional sanctuary, a church. You'll see a picture here of what, what we're proposing. Um, it has much of the same look, but the enhancements will be dramatic with sound, acoustical tiles, and things to help us. We're also proposing that just outside the sanctuary, we build a, what we're calling a multi-purpose room. We don't have a room like this. It's a room where we can have receptions after church. It's a room that could form, act as a chapel for small memorial services, which we have many of them, or weddings. It could be a reception place. It could be an adult ed teaching space that's going to be acoustically wonderful for those who come. And that'll be just outside our sanctuary in this space that we don't use. We're also proposing that we enhance our courtyard area with, with furniture where people can come. You don't see it in this picture where people can come and sit and gather. We're, this campus, that courtyard is filled throughout the week. Places that are attractive for young children, young families, and, and a welcome center. These are just some of the enhancements that we are proposing. We've been working on this behind the scenes for a long time. Um, many plans, many changes, many alterations, but this is what we are bringing forward to the congregation. Over the next six weeks, you're going to be hearing more about this campaign. Uh, we're going to have some small group gatherings. We're going to have a town hall meeting. We're going to have one-on-one -on -one meetings. We're going to go to all the groups of the church. And we want to share the excitement of this campaign and what we want to accomplish so that the next 40 years will be glorious as they have been in the past. Now, a show of hands, how many of you have done some remodeling in your house in the last 10 years? Show of hands. How many of you done bathroom, kitchen, tile? Now, how many of you who have your hands up found that the cost was a whole lot more than you expected? <laughs> yeah, I think that's every one of you. Wasn't it shocking to discover how much it actually costs? 
This is the same. This is, we're updating our house, and it is more expensive than we thought or we hoped. It does cost a lot, and it's costing more and more each day. <laughs> uh, to do all of this campaign, which we hope to do, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take the entire congregation, all of us, really pulling together. We've never done something like this in our church, this big. This is a big update. The whole cost of this is going to be a little bit north of $4 million. That's a big, big number. That's a very, very big number. But we have a very, very big God. We have a God who has also been very, very generous to us. Today, when you leave um, the sanctuary, you'll get a brochure that will tell you more about it. And then if you want to go visit, there's a tent outside that they put up during, in the service that has bigger pictures. And there will be representatives from our team that's been studying this, working on it. We have a whole group of folks from our church who've been working behind the scenes to get this ready. They'll be there to answer questions. Mostly today, though, I wanted to invite you to pray. Pray about this. Pray about what's coming and how we can pull together as a church family and, and do something really remarkable. Because God has done some, so much remarkable for us. Let me pray. Lord, we are, we're grateful for this church. We're grateful that 40 years ago, men and women pulled together and they said, we want to be, have a place where people can gather and learn about you. We're so grateful for their sacrifice and generosity. And Lord, we want to be the same kind of people that 40 years from now that they'll look back and say, look what they did for us. Um, so we need your guidance. We need your help uh, during the course of this campaign. We pray that you will watch over us, Lord. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.